Captain, we have them. We've established Transporter Lock, the Star Trek Discovery podcast. Join Ken and Sabriel each week as they explore strange new episodes, seek out new plots and new characters, and boldly go where no podcast has gone before. Hello and welcome to Transporter Lock, episode number 82. I'm your co-host, Chief Engineer Ken Gagney, and joining me as always is my other co-host. Hi, I'm Captain Sabriel Maston. Wow, it's a different intro than normal. <laughs> I don't know, it's just a little weird. It's been a while, huh? You're right. It's It has been a while. We actually just released our review of the first half of Star Trek Prodigy, but as we're recording this episode about Discovery Season 4, Episode 1, we actually haven't recorded the Prodigy episode yet, so we're doing a little bit of time travel here. So yeah, I can totally understand why we would be thrown off by a lot of different <laughs> things. Do you know that there are people out there who don't have to deal with space time distortions. They must sleep really well. <sighs> so jealous. So also today, it's November 20th as we record, but happy 25th anniversary to Star Trek First Contact. It came out on November 22nd, 96. Ooh, oh my gosh, the best Star Trek movie ever. Wow. I think it's up there with me too. It's one by one or two. I just rewatched that movie a few months ago with a friend of mine, and we talked about it on this podcast. Every time I watch it, I feel like, oh, this movie just came out. I, and even though I've seen it a million times, every time feels like the first time. And it's just such an amazing movie. It feels like it. Uh, and for context, I decided, you know what? I'm going to see what else was happening in Star Trek at that week. And because uh, at that time, DS9 and Voyager were running concurrently. Oh. It was... DS9 season five. It was the episode Things Past, where um, Cisco, Odo, Dax, and Garrick uh, were on their way back to the station. And on the station, they arrive unconscious. But for them, they are seven years in the past, and Odo has to work out some feelings of um, uh, the chicken was a baby, basically. Uh, <laughs> of the his chicken time. was uh, a it's baby? a mash reference. Uh, oh, <laughs> I never saw that show. Okay. But um, uh, Odo has to work through some feelings of his time on the station during the occupation. Because he didn't do everything he could have to save the various refugees, right? Right. Gotcha. And then Voyager, it was season three. It was the episode Warlord, where a dying warlord transferred his mind into Kess, and she got to play a big, bad, evil person for the episode. She got to throw, use her acting chops in ways that the show didn't really normally highlight. And I don't remember the episode too much at the moment. Uh, but I just was looking through, like, okay, yeah, this is what was happening in Star Trek 25 years ago. The same week First Contact came out, we got two new episodes of Star Trek. You know, I, I've only watched DS9 and Voyager all the way through once each when they were airing. I've never gone back and watched the, uh, them again. But I remember them vividly. And Warlord, at the end of that episode, Kess and Neelix break up. Yes. And I was so confused by that because I was like, Kess, you were not yourself. You were psychically possessed by a warlord. Why would that experience lead you to break up with somebody? Uh, I mean, she was going through a lot of experiences like, oh, do I like Tom Paris? Do I just not do I just not need to date someone since I was dating him since I was one? Right. There's also that. I am a child. Maybe I shouldn't <laughs> be dating anybody. Yeah. I was like, Delta Flyers are like, yeah, they were a little uncomfortable with that on the set too. But hey, this is what we're paid for. But uh, <laughs> yeah, so that was what was going on back then. I just thought that was an interesting little look back into star trek past because now we have two shows concurrently running as well that's right we've never had a, as much star trek as we do right now or at least as concurrently and also discovery season four episode one just aired we're here to talk about that primarily but also 
Discovery season three concluded earlier this year. Like we don't usually get Discovery back on the air that quickly. We usually All have to right. wait a year or more. Yeah, so cool. It's a cool experience. Uh, should we talk about Kobayashi Maru? The show, not <laughs> the episode, not the test. Yes. Actually, that's one thing I forgot to look up prior to getting on the podcast with you today was when is the last time the phrase Kobayashi Maru was used in Star Trek? We all know what it is. And for those who don't, there was sufficient explanation given in this episode, in my opinion. But I'm just wondering, do they actually talk about it that often? Like, I'm looking at Memory Alpha now. It came up in... My whole... 2009 is the last one I remember off the top of my head. What? Ha- oh, in the, the movie? Yeah. Oh, that's right. Because Kirk hacked it. Mm-hmm. That's right. And it says here that it was mentioned in the Voyager episode Learning Curve, which came out in 1995, so 26 years ago, uh, season one, episode 16. But yeah, like I don't remember it coming up in Enterprise or Picard or... Maybe lower decks, but I'd have to really rewatch it with a fine tooth comb. It, it didn't exist in Enterprise yet because Starfleet was new. That would be a good reason why it wasn't mentioned. <laughs> <laughs> well played. And I want to go back to talking about Starfleet and the things that you experience at the Academy. But Discovery Season Four, Episode One, Kobayashi Maru. Where would you like to begin our review, Captain? Uh, we'll start from the credits. They changed the credits uh, with the new Discovery A. Oh. So so this is the same discovery, just retrofitted for the future, right? Yep. Wait, is it a retrofit if it's the future? It's a, a retro, what would be future fit. Uh, but anyway. <laughs> I think that's right. It's been future fitted. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the discovery, it's the discovery A now. That's, that's just what it is. You don't, but we still call it enterprise enterprise, even though it's the A or B right. or C. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but yeah, so the intro has now like, no more connected cells. Nacelles has the the pizza slicer disc is no longer connected to the inner pizza slicer disc, and a little 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 you know flare like that as it flies around in the intro. And the intro, there's a sequence where it looks like the traditional Starfleet Delta is like beaming into a transporter beam or lot or room, and now that happens again. But as it's doing it, it changes its style to the current delta look that's on their comm badges it's like hmm. little touches like that yeah they often change the opening credits uh, definitely between seasons and even sometimes during seasons and sometimes there's a hint that we don't recognize until much later in the season like last season they had the dots uh were in the opening credits and that ended up being where the sphere data went into to almost no effect in the season to be honest Mm-hmm. So we may want to go back and like rewatch these credits. I mean, I'm going to be watching them every week. I never skip them, but I'm sure that ten episodes from now they're going to take on an even new meaning. Yes, absolutely. I mean, that's, that's tradition. Let's see if it holds up. They do change here. There's some more things in there, uh, but nothing that I have committed to memory. <laughs> you know, speaking of cosmetics, and I I know we're not, uh, not focusing on the most important things yet, but I really like the new uniforms. Really. Yes. What do you, is there anything that you like particular or you just like general? I, I think the colors are bright and vibrant. I like that it's not just like from the shoulders up, there's your color. Because there, there's so much about the future that is so often muted. It's all blacks and grays. So to have this splash of color on the bridge is really nice. They do look a little bit formal, but they're also, I, I don't know... Um, I mean, they look like a heavy material. Like, you could go out in the winter and be warm in that uniform. 
which may not be a good thing on a bridge, but at least it's not form fitting, which can be a little embarrassing, I think. I mean, you have you have the actors in padded muscle suits and chest enhancers, like in the original series or Next Generation, or like with Boimler, exactly. <laughs> you know, so I think this is uh, this accommodates more body shapes and sizes, which is a good thing. Uh, but for me, it's mostly just the color. Uh, for me, trailers. I absolutely hated them. Uh, yeah. I, I totally disliked the look, but in practice when, and the episode went on, I'm like, okay, I can see, the, I can dig these a bit more. I think, I think some characters look really weird in full gold, like um, Reese? Uh, Jet and Reese. Oh. Uh, Jet was not in this episode, but she was in uh, the season four trailer. Oh. And so like, ah, some people don't look good in gold. They look better in blue. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I've specifically not watched the trailer, so I have not seen how Jet appears. I'm looking forward to seeing her. I'm glad to know that she's back. She's one of my favorite characters. And uh, I wouldn't be surprised if, given the kind of character she is, she makes some snarky remark about, ah, don't like these new uniforms. <laughs> I hope so. Yeah. But the, in short, though, the episode, the, the uniforms have grown on me a little bit, but I think mostly the red and blue. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the other things I noticed at the very beginning of the episode, as I'm getting used to these uniforms, and I see Burnham walking around uh, Starfleet headquarters and Discovery, and I'm thinking to myself, she looks younger somehow. And, I'm th- and I had to ask myself, is it the uniform? No. Is it her hairstyle? No. Is it how I keep forgetting how short she is until she stands next to somebody else? <laughs> no. <laughs> I finally figured it out. It was the fact that she was smiling. Ah, she's happy in her position here. Right. And that's not me making some sexist remark about how women should smile. It's the fact that Michael Burnham has not had a lot to smile about for the first three seasons. I mean, she was uh, exiled from Starfleet. She had an abusive lover. Uh, She lost her mom. She got torn into the future and separated from her ship for a whole year. And she has had a really rough lot. And as we've said, the first three seasons were contiguous. Like, there was no rest for the weary here. And now, finally, season four starts. It's been five months since the last episode. She's ha- She has a healthy relationship. She's the captain of a starship. She's helping bring Starfleet back. She's actually in her own skin. She's no longer thinking about, what's the future for me? Maybe I don't belong in Starfleet. She has accepted who she is, where she is, who she's with. And I'm just so glad that somebody who's been through so much finally caught a break. That's an awesome point. Uh, that's a wonderful point. Yeah. Um, good for Michael. I know the end. Uh, and now she's going you know, right back into the fire, but at least she's finally had a break. <laughs> yeah. And I, and I want to talk about how this ties back into the end of the episode, but we'll get there. What other thoughts do you have going into the show? In general, this episode afterwards was the most excited i've been for a season of discovery after the first episode so far and i cannot pinpoint the exact moment or what yet maybe that will come into light today but something about this episode had me feeling the most hopeful for a good season yet and it's not that i've disliked all the other seasons it's just this one had me feeling that there's something different about this season Going into the season, before I started watching the episode, I was like, okay, another massive threat to all existence of that we know. And Discovery is the one who has to deal with it yet again. 
uh, and afterwards, like, okay, I'm ready to see what you got. Now, see, I am a little disenchanted with the global or galactic threats that we keep seeing. And that's one of the reasons why, I mean, people have talked about not only are they constantly dealing with galactic threats, but they're also doing so in a season that is abbreviated compared to TNG. And that's one of the reasons why we have less character development. Although you and I have pointed out that Picard still managed to do it better than Discovery. But still, I'm like, (sighs) so skipping to the end, we saw the planet, I'm sorry, what's the name? Quajon? Quajon, yeah. It got destroyed. And I started thinking about that in many cases is Star Trek's go-to to to represent a serious threat. And I started thinking about what other planets have we seen destroyed? So (laughs) the 2009 movie, Nero destroyed Vulcan. Star Trek Voyager, uh, Species 8472 destroyed some Borg planets. Star Trek Generations, Dr. Soren destroyed, I think, a whole solar system. Star Trek VI, I don't know if this counts, the Klingons accidentally destroyed their whole moon. It works. Yeah. Uh, Star Trek, the original series, the Doomsday Machine, of course. Even Enterprise, they attacked Earth with a massive ray gun. That's that's right. Uh, the episode Twilight, we actually saw the Earth destroyed. Mm-hmm. That's right. I forgot about that. Good call. I tried finding some sort of a canonical list. Star Trek Online has a wiki list of destroyed planets. That doesn't count. I couldn't find anything like it in Memory Alpha. But I'm just uh, tired of planets being destroyed to show how evil somebody is. Like, <laughs> you want to show somebody's evil, like, attack them on a personal level. Like, go into their YouTube comments and leave something biting. <laughs> on our next villain, Section 31's AI is back, and they're leaving <laughs> negative reviews on Discovery's Captain's uh, neighbor, next door app. Sabriel, <laughs> uh, you're joking, but my stomach is churning just listening to that. <laughs> And that's its entire plot is to take right? down Burnham. No, oh my God, yes! Like she becomes exiled again. Like, uh, I don't know. I read about you on Yelp, Burnham. You got a lot of uh, downvotes. That's right. That's right. Worst captain in the galaxy would not ride again. So I suppose maybe we can cut down to. I don't like to speculate too much because, especially this early in, who the big bad evil guy or thing or phenomenon is going to be, because usually they give very few hints. I think there are a few hints this time. Do you want to spoil them for me? And not specific threat, but I think hints. I think it's an extragalactic threat, perhaps related to Andromeda. But the perhaps is the my speculation. Remind me what Andromeda is? The next galaxy over. Oh, <laughs> they're neighbors. Got it. Besides a uh, TV series, series also by Gene Roddenberry. Oh, did that have Kevin Sorbo? I think so. Or... Uh, yeah. yeah. That's unfortunate. I used to like him. Huh. Okay. And there's a few reasons why. I think it's an extragalactic threat. I do not know if it's a person or a thing yet that is not told. And we are intentionally left in the void. But there is a line from uh, the teaser where Michael says, this is a threat like none our galaxy has faced before. Hmm. In this episode, there early on, there is a moment where Saru is talking to the council on Kaminar. And someone asks... It basically is Kaminar or Kaminar, not the most important part of our, our world, our home, taking care of our home. And he's like, he puts it into perspective, like Kaminar is our home son. We, it's our son, but is it our son? It's, uh, the sun belongs to six planets in this system and the system belongs to the next thing. And then the galaxy, and he brings, he specifically brings out how Kaminar is the part of the galaxy and beyond that is space. 
And the next scene, which was one of my favorite scenes, and I'll tell, talk about that in a minute, but President Rilak, she says, she specifically points out how the new ships that they're building take crews to places they can't imagine. And now, obviously, it's a Star Trek thing and normal. But the timing is key here, where she says this right after Saru's comments, that these ships are taking crews to places they can't imagine with new engines, new technologies. And at the end of the episode, President Relic says, talks about how they're working on the next generation spore drive and the Vulcan jump jet gate thing, whatever like that. Again, the pathway drive. Yeah, and Voyager. And so I think there's a lot of hints here talking about traveling extragalactically. And, and there's a scene here, something about in another teaser part, Michael talks about going to a place where no one has gone before. And I think we've established basically that the Federation has gone to most of the galaxy by this point in time. Because like last season, we saw displays with like Delta Quadrant places and things like that. And so, yeah, those are pieces of evidence that suggest some kind of extragalactic threat, but not necessarily confirmation. So do you think that Starfleet has already gone to the other galaxy and Saturn did something to provoke them? No, because they didn't have the tech yet. Okay, so what, So is this like a preemptive strike? Um, well, we've only seen one uh, alive people from Andromeda before in Star Trek's history. And that is from the original series, the Kelvin Empire. Uh, these are the people who Kirk and crew faced in by another name, and they came to the Milky Way to try and play, find places suitable for conquest and occupation. And so it's been a thousand years there. The MO would change if it means we're destroying planets, unless it's just meant to scare people. But if it, so if our big bad evil person or group is someone we know, I think it's the Kelvins. If it's not, who knows? Part of the speculation before I started thinking extra galactic threat is like the non-corporeal life forms, such as the Q or uh, the prophets. I wonder if they had anything to do with that, but that just felt like such a weird stretch. This isn't their normal thing. And since they're people out of time, like I don't think their thing would change much without some kind of major catastrophe. Mm-hmm. So I don't like, I know. Like I entertained that thought for like point three seven eight seconds, which, which was is an a very long time for an android. Yeah. Uh <laughs> Interesting. I mean, Discovery is certainly not shy about tying into the original series. They tied into the Mirror Universe, uh, the Guardian from of Forever. They tied into the Defiant and going back in time from the Tholian Web. And, of course, the, the, the Cage slash the Menagerie with the Talosians. This would be a pretty deep cut, though, if they were trying to tie into the Andromedans. Because I'll be honest... The original series is the only series of Star Trek of which I have not seen every episode. And I don't think I know the one you're referring to. Oh, the Kelvins are also people who can turn people into salt. uh, Yeah, it happened in that episode. Uh, I'll send you a link that will be completely irrelevant to listeners. But um, yeah, this is, oh God, it was season two, apparently. I just pulled up this thing. But uh, maybe this image will will refresh a memory. You may have seen this picture before. Oh, that's not even the picture. I just went to the website. And so I know that's not the most, but but, but it's, you'll see this image of a salt guy picking up a salt person that you just click. Basically, they took all the moisture out of someone's body and turned them into the components of what's left and uh, like nitrates and carbon and everything and then squished them and showing Kirk, this is how powerful I am. And so the Calvins, if they have that kind of tech and they can turn make gravitational forces and destroy planets, I think is within reason. But again... I'm only basing this in if our villain is someone 
that we know from Star Trek's past, Kelvin Empire is plausible. If it's someone else, we haven't been given enough evidence yet. I didn't realize somebody from the Kelvin Empire was in the biblical book of Genesis. They must be the ones that turned Lot's wife into a pillar of salt. <laughs> Maybe. I guess I don't know. <laughs> I had no idea. What a, an amazing crossover. <laughs> I love it. So that's my hypothesis at the moment. Well, I guess we'll see if there's more evidence or they just flat out tell us. I know I've been taking up a lot of time. I hope season four doesn't string us along as long as season three did. <laughs> We've talked about the pacing of season three, how I was okay with it, but yeah, we'll see. Uh, it'll be interesting to see how quickly things develop because they certainly didn't waste any time establishing the threat here. Like in season three of Discovery, the first two episodes at least, we didn't really get to know anything about the Emerald Chain or about the Burn. I don't know that either of those terms even came up. Uh, I think the Emerald Chain did when Burnham went to that city, but yeah, the the... the the threat that they ultimately ended up addressing both the Emerald chain and the burn were not things right off the bat. Whereas here, you know, season four, episode one, at the end of it, we have a planet killer and we got to make sure that doesn't happen again. Right. I did have some observations about the planet killer. Uh, Actually it's a fact. This was rather academic of me, but they go to the planet Quajon and the helmsman says, there's nothing there. And Book says, well, you must have it wrong. And they're like, oh, well, we do see something 100,000 kilometers away. And I thought, how far away is that in galactic terms? Should, should they have been able to see it? Yeah. So I did some math. The diameter of our planet, Earth, is about 8,000 miles or 12,700 kilometers. So that means that the planet Quajon was found about eight Earths away from where it should have been. That's actually good context for comparison. However, you recall that planets are not fixed. They are in orbit. And so they're always moving anyway. So the Earth moves 66,000 miles per hour, roughly, or about 107,000 kilometers per hour. So the planet Quajon was as far away as Earth moves in about one hour. Wow. That's actually quite a bit in a way. Quite a bit, and yet not much when it comes to space, because space is really, really big. You might think going to the chemist is a way, long ways away, <laughs> but it's true, especially when like so. The Earth does move quite a ways in one hour, but that's one hour out of one day, and there are 365 days. So the Earth moves a lot, and this is a very small portion of that. So should it have showed up in their view screen when they arrived at the original coordinates? Probably not. Was it hard for them to find otherwise? No, and we saw that. They're like, oh, there's something right over here. Yeah, I didn't think it was kind of weird. Like, well, oh, oh just show that. <laughs> you don't need to be told. Uh- <laughs> right. Well, that's why I was wondering. They're like, oh my, they like reiterated a couple of times. There's nothing here. There's nothing here. But there is something <laughs> over there. Like, gee, you think that might be it? It's kind of like when somebody emails me and says, Ken, my password to the website isn't working. And I was like, can you send me a screenshot? And they do. And it says, uh, password incorrect. And right beneath it is a link that says, reset password. And I was Mm -hmm. like, what happens if you click that? They're like, oh, I wasn't sure if I should. (laughs) I was like, yes, yes, do that. You know, in-universe, we see planets blowing up and moving all the time. But but in-universe, it's kind of a non-common phenomenon. I can see them going like, that could never happen. (laughs) Whoa, it happened. Uh, right. Fair enough. <laughs> uh, so the aliens, the Alshanes at the beginning, I thought they were so cool in flight the, form. The butterfly people. Uh-huh. 
<laughs> I thought that was just a fun scene. They looks they actually felt very original series to me, even though this is the first time they've ever appeared in Star Trek. Yes. I think that that's a really good point. I hadn't thought of it that way, but you are correct. And I that seems consistent with the vibe Discovery seems to aim for. And oh, I thought it was cool. I'm sure there was something there that will like the no strings attached line or something like that might become important again later in this season. But this felt like a fun little way to introduce our season. And they're getting all like talking about how <laughs> book and book and Michael talking about grudge and calling her a queen. And they all like, you are holding royalty. You have a monarch, <laughs> a monarch on board. We will free the monarch. <laughs> I know, it was just fun. That was a really cool effect with the butterfly eyes. Yes. Oh. You know, even when she said no strings attached and there was a long pause, I'm thinking to myself, they're not going to know what that means. And then she was like, oh, I'm sorry. That's an idiom. <laughs> <laughs> and they're like, we know. <laughs> yeah. And they even threw some back at her. They're like, oh, you're offering us this for the low, low price of. <laughs> it's like, wait, what? Are they watching Earth infomercials? <laughs> they had dealings with the Federation before. So apparently. Oh, sure. Sure. I'm not so, questioning it. No, I just thought it was like, funny. It was funny. It was funny. Yeah. And I like how she handled it. Like she refused to fire. She refused to escape. I did question the choice of bringing Book on that mission because he's not Starfleet. Well, she said, I brought you here to do the empathy thing. <laughs> and so she's using the resources that she's using the resources available to her. But does that work on people? Empathy? Ooh. Empathy? No. Don't ever <laughs> empathize with people. I mean, again, read the comments. No such thing. <laughs> I mean, Picard would bring Diana to help empathize and stuff. So to me, it's no different than, uh, I mean, she could, you know, read motions higher. We don't know really books capabilities, but it made sense to me. Also spend time with the boyfriend. That's true. But I also remember the time that Archer brought Porthos on a first contact mission and that did not go well. I don't think book pee on a tree. Oh, I don't think book did. <laughs> <laughs> like I'm talking about, no, no, no. I'm talking about <laughs> grudge. <laughs> Oh, I suppose that grudge being aboard the ship is one of the things that complicated this second contact mission. And maybe grudge could have stayed somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Or grudge could have been there and it could have shown that he was, or grudge was not a vicious creature or a butterfly <laughs> or a butterfly. Sorry. Anyway. Yeah. I thought it was cool. And uh, did you want to also talk about like the, so we saw like three alien races. We saw the butterfly people. We saw, Kaminar and the Kelpians, and then we saw Quajon. Do you want to talk about one of those other two? Uh, I think Kelp, uh, the Kelpian scene was one to show, okay, Saru's going to go back to Discovery. Sakal's like, it's okay. I know that being home was important to you and sticking with me was important, but I have friends now. You can go back and play with your friends if you want. And also to set up the whole comment I made earlier about how Kaminar is an island in the galaxy. I think mm. Saru's words were to talk about perspective and show our threat. I liked the comparison of how Saru's definition of home has changed. Like leaving Kaminar in the first place, which we saw in the short trek, the brightest star, was difficult for him. And now it's going back to Kaminar is difficult because that's no longer his home. Discovery is his home. And I liked seeing that evolution of the character demonstrated in this episode. I also liked how they called him something like the, the, the Great Elder or something. Yes. And, and like their wording for him being a person out of time. Uh, that was neat. That's true. I mean, in 
Discovery's original era, no Kelpian had lived as long as Saru had because they always would have died before then. And so he would be the oldest person. You, you recall in season three, when they found that hologram, they're like, we've never seen a Kelpian this old before on the holodeck. Yeah. And so, and so he would be old in his original era, but now Kelpians have been living to be that old for 900 years. So he's not old relatively, but like, or maybe it maybe relatively is exactly what I mean. Time travel is weird. <laughs> the my favorite scene was uh, on uh, the starbase when um, well one President Rillick was cool. She looks like to be Cardassian, Bajoran, and human. Oh, that's interesting. Lineage. I hadn't thought of that. But I got misty eyed. I got misty eyed because she revealed the Archer space dock and the Archer theme end credits music played. Not Enterprise theme like Voyager would do. But the Archer's theme music played, and uh, which which is a theme that a lot of people regarded was should have been the opening credits. You know, I've said this before. I'll say it again. You're very good at picking up audio cues in Star Trek because that is not something I noticed. I can't even imagine what Archer's theme is. I would have to look it up on YouTube and then go back and watch this episode of Discovery to make that connection. Uh, all you needed to do is like the first five, ten seconds of the theme, and uh, it, that's what it, this was. Is that the horns playing there? It's just the oh, perfect. <laughs> uh, and I got misty because I loved Enterprise so much. I loved Enterprise too. I really enjoyed it. It's another show I've only watched once through. But one thing that occurred to me when they unveiled the space dock was for a show that is so good about diversity, why would they name the space dock after a straight white cis man? Like, like why not call it the Gomez space dock? I mean, to me, it was more like the. We are starting our space travel. Archer was the first person in Starfleet to really start our space travel. That's fair. That's legit. Okay, that <laughs> makes sense. But I was also thinking, if they do want to name it after a straight white cis man, and if Lower Decks is canon, why not call it the O'Brien space dock? <laughs> I know, who knows? O'Brien might still be around. <laughs> we know he had a statue on him, but... That brings up a good point, which was in Season 3 of Discovery, there was a lot of internet chatter about... Who's the president of Starfleet? Who's the president of the Federation? Who is it? Like some people thought it's going to be Picard in his robot form. He's still alive. Or some other people actually thought it's going to be Cisco come back from the prophets. <laughs> and actually it turns out it's nobody we've ever heard of before. And that is totally fine with me. Me too. One thing about the president though is, so last season we were not really sure if the Admiral was a good guy or not. And now we know he is and he's smiling and he's glad to be reunited with his family. And so we sort of like have filled his former role with the president. Cause we're like, is she a good person? Is she manipulative? And there were a couple of scenes that stuck out for me. One was, when Burnham was flying back to Discovery and she opens up a private line with the president and says, did you read his file or were you actually on his planet? And that just seemed like a weird thing for Burnham to focus on, given right. everything else that was going on at that moment. That did to me too. That felt like out of place. Like It was a question you asked later. Right, exactly. And also, even if you do want to ask it later, it's still not important. Like Clearly, Burnham has an opinion about politicians and she's looking to fill those preconceived notions. But now is not the time, Burnham. And also, just like, it doesn't, like, I agree with the president. Does it matter? Like, I would have done the exact same thing in her position, in, in the president's position. Yeah, I hope, my first thought was, oh, please don't make her a villain now. And 
I and they made her seem likable to me by the end. But I also she's an actress I've seen in other shows, <laughs> and um, I hope they don't pull in those acting chops to make her turn evil. What else have you seen her in? Uh, she played Helen Smith in The Man in the High Castle, Open Group and Fuhrer's uh, wife. She was um, basically the wife of the president of the Nazi America. Okay. Did not know that. Really hard show to watch, but good in the entertaining sense. Hmm. And the bad guys do get their comeuppance. Well, good. So, uh-huh. I mean, you should punch Nazis. Yes. Yes. Always punch Nazis. <laughs> I'm going to go on my ship's motto. <laughs> the USS always punch Nazis. No, no, no. But that, whatever the ship name. And then our, you know, they always have like some Latin motto. Just, oh, I know. I know. Nazis. I was just, I was just saying, why stop at the motto, Captain? Why not just go <laughs> whole hog? So. The punch Nazis A, the punch Nazis B. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. I'm down with this. <laughs> There was a really interesting line the president said to Burnham, which was, a question doesn't imply questioning. I think I understood what she meant, but it nonetheless made me wonder, if you're not questioning her, then why are you asking the question? To make them stop and think about why they said it. You do it to me all the time, not in that not that sense of dramatic tension, but it's just a push, like, why do you think that? It makes you think a little bit more, like, why do you think that? <laughs> Wait, did you say I do that? Yeah. I'm like the Madam President? It's part of the... In- I, you, you also ignored the rest of what I said. but uh, <laughs> I always focus on the parts that are about me, Captain. Come on. Uh-huh. As someone who's doing interviews or asking people, you know, like you're on a show you know, or on panels, someone will say something and they may not... It may kind of be instinctual to them or just kind of come out. And so when you pause them to make them think about why they said what they said and sometimes it's just one of those things you know like instinct uh, other times it's like you know what why did i say that was it right to stop burnham when you're in the middle of a, an evacuation crisis questionable but i don't think the president was wrong agree about it being questionable even burnham said if you're not relieving me from the chair i have a mission to do and she's yeah. like you're the captain i was like good because those precious seconds might have just cost somebody their life yeah, that's all I kept thinking of that in those moments. Like, yeah. <laughs> Jumping around a bit and going back to the space dock and uh, Archer space dock, that was right after the inauguration of the new class of Starfleet Academy, which is the first time it's been open in 150 years, which leaves me wondering, I know Starfleet has been a shadow of its former self, but it has nonetheless existed and all of its members were not 150 years old. So where were new members coming from for the last century and a half? if not Starfleet Academy. The Federation and Starfleet are intertwined, but they are different. Starfleet is specifically, normally, the wing about scientific exploration. When the Federation, before Discovery came arrived, was on crisis mode survival. And so they were getting people, but there was not a mission of discovery, a scientific discovery. And there was no training program, apparently, because there was no academy. doesn't mean there was no training program. It was just no Starfleet. There was no scientific uh, training. At least no formalized. So Starfleet is just a separate wing. Is their science wing? But but like Starfleet existed. Like uh-huh. that's what the, that's what the admiral was the admiral of. Yeah, but they clearly they had something, but they didn't have like a formalized academy in the sense that we know it or you remember it. I guess it's kind of like how Adira became Starfleet without going through Starfleet Academy, or even Ensign Crusher was an ensign on the Enterprise before going to Starfleet. 
Yeah. And so to me, it didn't seem weird. It's like, okay, now we can finally slow down and do things our traditional way again. Impressive that I think they got 21 Federation members either joining or rejoining just in five months. And some of them, she even said, were their former antagonists. Yeah. So it makes me think like people who had joined the Emerald Chain Mm -hmm. uh, joined up with them. Cool. You got the Delithia. We'll work with you now. Now, does that mean it's a good relationship? Who knows? Well, maybe we'll find out in the future. It is a little concerning that so many people are so easily swayed just by dilithium. I mean, granted, I I recognize that it enables space travel, but it's still just one resource. We don't know if it's easily swayed. We don't know what they went through. (laughs) I don't know much about the history of the European Union, but I wonder, like, did any country go from antagonistic to a member of the EU in just five months? I don't know. Me neither, but... (laughs) One of the exchanges that Burnham had with the president near the end, Burnham said that her experiences have prepared her for any kind of captaincy, <laughs> which is not only a bold statement, but also five months ago at the end of season three, she was hesitant to take the reins of the discovery. She's gained some confidence or she watched a lot of Star Trek and watched a lot of what Picard and and <laughs> all or of them she did. Just, like she asked the computer, show me a list of the most decorated captains. What advice do you have based on them? And of course, mm-hmm. the sphere data is like, oh, you should just do this and then you'll be awesome. Just watch Saru's episode. Right? <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so clearly she's not only happier, but she's also more confident. But now I don't think we're going to see a lot of that happiness because Book, just like Spock, is one of the last of his species, if not the last of his species. I'm referring to Spock in the uh, movie universe. Yeah. That's going to have an impact on their romantic relationship. Yeah. I mean, she's going to be there for book. Book's going to need some support. Book's going to have a journey where he wears his um, connection necklace again. Uh, Because during the ceremony, little kid was like, why don't you wear yours, Uncle Book? And he's like, that's (laughs) a story story for another time. time. And and so that other time will come sometime during the season. By the end of the season, he'll be wearing it again to honor Rijan. Yeah, he's going to go through some things, through some things, and but he's going to have, I think he's going to have Michael there to support him. And maybe we'll find out why he's called Book. Maybe. He's a really big fan of Firefly. Ah, damn it. I was just going to say that. (laughs) Well played. So the whole space station scene was the fact that it was a space station, D-Space repair station six or whatever the heck it is. That part is irrelevant. It was meant more as a character driving moment. And a emergency thing for our put our characters in danger. So like the crew there, whatever. It didn't matter for the show. But Adira and Tilly had some moments there. And then the rescue had their own moments, which we kind of already talked about. But um, when they're about to escape, uh, most of the crew had nearly evacuated on the little shuttle. And it was on their way back. So it was just Adira, Tilly, and our um, guy who's going to die. He asked, he says, like he talks about what's next for him. He talks about how he's gonna. He's been coasting through life. He's going to go home, sit on the beach or whatever like that. And he asks, "What's next for you?" Adira answers immediately, saying like bubble bath, tea, whatnot. They, and then Adira they ask Tilly, and Tilly acts as if she was only kind of half paying attention, and then she kind of looks at Adira for a moment, like in thought, and then says, "I don't know." And then the scene cuts away. Something is going on with Tilly. That she's thinking about what? We're not told yet. But something is making her think about her future. And I wonder, I want to know where that goes. I think 
facing your own death is a good reason to think about your future or lack thereof. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the, the way that I highlighted that scene, and it was kind of like Discovery does this little subtle thing that where things come back in the future. Hmm. Is Tilly Burnham's number one? Because Tilly's a lieutenant, not a commander. Actually, we don't know yet. Would she held that title for a moment, or she, you know, she was captain for a bit. So it would be plausible for me, to me, excuse me, that if she turned out to be, because like the the rank, I don't think matters. You just have the person you confide in and ha- is an officer. That's true. Uh, she was Saru's number one, but she was still an ensign. I hadn't mm-hmm. thought of that. I just always thought. You know, if you're going to make it permanent, which Saru had not, it was just a trial basis, then that person would be a commander. But uh, it's what we traditionally have seen, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's always it. And I think Discovery is good about bucking that trend. Like even original series uh, had Spock and Kirk were two captains after Kirk was demoted. But it, uh, Kirk or Spock was still his you know, commander. And in the original series, before Kirk was demoted from Admiral, and Spock was his science officer. Was Spock a commander? I think he was captain at that point, but I'm not 100% sure on that. No, no. On, on the original series? like uh, On the original series, he was. I think he was commander. commander. Okay, that was my question. Yeah, okay. Sorry, okay. I misunderstood. Um, sure. So, yeah, I think it's traditionally what we've seen on TV, but I don't think commander rank is required. It's just we're just used to that. Right. Like like even Ben Sisko was captain of of DS9 before he became captain kind of thing. He was commander. I mean, no, I mean, he was commander rank. I mean, he was basically the leader. He was the commander. He was captain. Right. Um, but not in rank. Correct. Oh, actually, actually, one more thing. I never noticed this until someone pointed out to me on like a, a YouTube channel like a week or two ago. Commander Chakotay was actually like a, a lieutenant commander. On Voyager? Yeah. Like, was it just some stray corn or something that he had the wrong <laughs> No, he had um, the... I didn't know. He didn't have the pips. Oh, uh, he had. He had. He didn't have the traditional Starfleet pips. All the Maquis crew had like acting role, which I never huh. caught. And he was not commander. He was Commander Chakotay. He his rank equivalized to like Lieutenant Commander. Interesting. Did I never that. noticed this until like a week or two ago when someone pointed <laughs> it out. And this is a twenty-year-old TV series that you've yeah. probably watched many times. Yeah. And so I just like that was interesting. Huh. So there you go. So again, more evidence that was right in our face and we didn't notice. Who knew? <laughs> and also on that away mission to save the crew of the space station, one of the crewmen was a Lurian. Yeah. Just like Morn. Uh-huh. I bet you he's just a chatterbox. <laughs> he never shuts up. Oh, my God. <laughs> I'm also curious, though, what sort of gravimetric distortion can destroy first Quajon's moon and then Quajon? But it doesn't destroy a space station. It just sends it spinning. They must have really been on the far edge of that distortion. Yeah, it must have just like, uh, think of it as like a wave pushing away something before yep. you know, the main wave comes in. Something like that. You know, I almost forgot. So I watched Discovery just before I went to bed. And even if it's a common trope now, watching a planet be destroyed is still pretty upsetting. And I had a dream about it. Ooh. I dreamt I was on an away mission down to the surface of Quajon, because Book wanted to find out, like, is it true that everybody's gone? Which is what he said in the episode. And so we went down there, and it turned out that it was just like a holographic projection. When we got down there, everything was fine. <laughs> it was just a protective measure. Right. Like, it looked destroyed, but then you get down there, and, like, you're in the forest, just like in the episode, and the birds are chirping, and everything is fine. Oh, uh, interesting. 
Um, that may say a lot more about my psyche than I wanted to. <laughs> uh, now there's two thoughts I want to jump to. Um, okay. Quijon and crew. Uh, let's go to crew real quick. You mentioned the Lorian. There was a, a crew, new crew member, Christopher, Lieutenant Ensign Christopher. Berna mentioned his name early on the bridge. And then he was talking to, was it Reese? Uh, partway through the episode. And so we're getting a new person. Yeah, not Reese, but I, I noticed that too. Because I, ha- I had to turn on the subtitles for that scene. Yeah. And I saw a person I didn't recognize uh, having uh, speaking lines. I'm like, yeah. who's this? So such an like, Ensign Christopher or something like that. And then back to the Quijon thing. As Book was talking to his brother, I think quote-unquote brother, he's flying into space. They're talking about his brother's like, maybe the bridge just felt an earthquake before we did. I'm like, okay, that's going to be an important line now. Um, something micro that the birds felt before bad things happened. I bet you if birds can feel it, butterflies can too. Maybe. Uh, and so I think that'll be a thing like you got to watch for the the early uh, shocks before the big one. Now that they know more about the nature of this disruption, they are going to come up with some way to either track it or detect it or predict it. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe it'll be a canary in a coal mine. Who knows? I have one last thought, which is... Near the very very beginning of the episode, as Book and Michael are leaving Discovery, they cross paths with a Tribble. Mm. That was in my random thoughts list. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that's important. I don't. I think it's just a random thing that they threw in. But nonetheless, you know, us being Star Trek fans, small things create big thoughts. And mm. I really want to know: Have the Tribbles joined the Federation? <laughs> right. Like that triple knew where it was going, and Michael was just kind of chuckled as she stepped out of the way of it. <laughs> like, oh, excuse me. <laughs> also, like, I don't usually see triples being that mobile. No, that thing is booking it. Ah, yes. <laughs> oh, well, what is, oh, that's the end of my random thoughts until I have some other non discovery stuff to share. Let's wrap up with yours. Well, I have more random thoughts, but I have one more thought about the episode that was not random. Okay. Adira. We got to see Adira. And their partner, who escapes me because I'm putting myself on the spot, they had a scene early on. Well, first of all, Michael, uh, when they're trying to science the heck out of the problem, they talk about get them on, uh, get them to help out. And I kind of paused for a minute, not because it was a stand-up line for the line, but just also like, it's so rare for me to hear shows use they them pronouns for any character period and that's what made me do a pause like oh man it just felt good that they're respecting that yes that shouldn't stand out to me but it does and in a good way yeah it stood out in a way like wow it's just it's something that's not common on tv yet mm. and i'm glad that it's the norm here on discovery but about adira and one syllable i heard you typing did you look it up for me because i can't gray gray thank you they had a scene where Adira steps onto the bridge and they're nervous, which was adorable. And Gray is talking them down. Like, you can do it. And Gray is like, once we incorporate my body, like very much like telling us what's going to work. They're going to work on this season at some point. I thought that was cool. But then on the space station, or no, just as Tilly and Adira get back from the space station, they land, crash landed on the shuttle bay of Discovery. Discovery jumped away but a rock jumped with them and crashed into the ship as well meaning the escape shuttle was still destroyed even though they made it back and adira steps out in shock and they say like i don't understand we made it we were safe 
And that moment feels like it's going to be very important for Adira coming to that realization of you're not always safe when you think you are. I guess I don't know the exact exact lesson there, but it felt like it's going to be an important moment for Adira to work through. Hmm. That just that moment of, I don't understand. We made it. We were safe. How come we were still? How come we're still like this right now? Right. That shock moment. Even if it doesn't have anything, that shock felt. Uh, it's going to be something. Care. I don't know. I just felt important. Well, we never know. Like last season, uh, we had Detmer dealing with PTSD from bringing the ship into the future. I didn't expect that was going to happen. Mm-hmm. But yeah, uh, these characters are still going through a lot. And I think we heard in a panel on Star Trek Day just two and a half months ago that Gray is going to be incorporated and that we are going to see more of this character cool. in a more substantial form. Cool. Oh, Adira is going to kind of start realizing, like, because all of Adira's experiences so far, everything has worked out. All of a sudden, here, they thought they helped someone, they rescued someone, they got back safely, and the person still died. So that's going to be something that they are well, going to work out. I mean, that's the Kobayashi Maru right there. Uh huh. So this this is a lesson not just for Burnham, who did go through Starfleet Academy, but also for uh, Gray and Adira, who did not. Yeah. Because there so, was no such thing. Right. So. Mm-hmm. I think that was neat. That was just my thought of the episode itself proper. My last random thought, because I actually brought up the other ones throughout the episode we were talking today. So the last one of my five bullet points is that Stamets said the Heisenberg compensator is offline and that's a transporter function. And it made me think that the, you know, personal comm badges that you beam around, use the ship as a base of some kind or something like that. And then right after Stamets says that we see Burnham actually use a turbo lift. So good continuity. I too wondered about the Heisenberg compensator. I thought everything had just been miniaturized and shrunk into the comm badges and didn't need a, a, like a, a central processing unit, basically. It, it makes yeah. me want to go back and watch season three because in the first episode where we see those personal transporters, we see Burnham and Book basically in a chase scene rushing across the planet, transporting willy-nilly. Was that his ship coordinating all that? Yeah, uh, I think... This is tech that they either hadn't laid down how it works yet, or I'm just uh, in season three, or um, we're not supposed to think about it, or um, they're just adding a new thing to it for the season four dramatic effect. Make it up as you go. That's fine. This is Star Trek. Mm -hmm. By the way, I do want to point out, I really appreciated this line from Saru, which was, one cannot have all the lives one desires. Yeah, I was like, that's so true. There's so much I want to do in this life. And it kind of reminds me of that Garfield animated special where he gets to the end of his ninth life and he lies and says, oh, no, no, that was our first life. And they're like, oh, OK, we get eight more then. <laughs> like, yes. And my friend Odie here is also a cat and gets nine lives. They're like, oh, OK. I was like, oh, I do want to have all the lives I desire. <laughs> right. Anyway, so that was Discovery Season 4, Episode 1. We'll be back. There are a couple of other things I want to mention in the meantime, which was we, I think, got a DM on Twitter about a special that aired on November 5th on the History Channel celebrating Star Trek's 55th anniversary, which was, of course, two months ago. The special was called The Center Seat, 55 Years of Star Trek. It's a 10-part docu-series. Wow, how did I not hear of this? I don't know. It's It's... On the History Channel, I think the first four episodes are free, uh, or maybe they all are. I haven't, to be honest, read the full press release, but I'll tweet it and I'll send it to you. History Channel, you say, aliens. (laughs) (laughs) Right. It's kind of like when the Boston Museum of Science had a special about Harry Potter. I was like, (laughs) uh, but this 
docuseries is narrated and executive produced by Gates McFadden, who we oh. all know is the choreographer from Labyrinth. Yes, key important role there. I think she right. did something else too. Yeah, nothing relevant to this documentary. It's <laughs> sort of a weird pick, but so yeah, that is something that we can watch in our spare time. Also, actually more relevant to Discovery is that season four is not airing internationally on Netflix. Yeah, the big the burn continues. <laughs> I hadn't heard it called that. I like. That. I thought of that this morning. I'm like Paramount and getting rid of Star Trek on Netflix slowly. Now you have to go to Paramount Plus or Amazon to watch uh, some some of the shows, and now they're getting rid of Discovery on Netflix outside of the U.S. I haven't fully explored to understand the internal machinations and what business transactions led to this. I presume, like everybody else does, that it was Paramount pulling Discovery from Netflix, but it's also possible that like Netflix gave them a bad deal, like we want this much money or whatever. Star Trek is one of Netflix's top stream shows. Mm, mm-hmm. And so that's very possible. And so, but Paramount gets the, I'm all ready to dunk on Paramount, but uh, they might've gotten the bad rap on something Netflix did. Right, like Netflix is no angel. Why do they escape unscathed from this? Mm -hmm. So I don't know where to point fingers. I presume that Paramount Plus is going to have an international release eventually, and then everybody will be able to watch Discovery on the same network that you and I are. But I just want to point out that's the thing that happened. Yeah, I know. That's a very good point. Uh, And one more thing is I was watching some short films, some short fan films on YouTube, Uh, I watched a couple of Star Wars shorts, and then I watched a Batman short. One of the shorts was uh, featuring Han Solo. He is caught in a bar, like, cheating at cards because he's trying to win back a lightsaber that he can then trade to a merchant or a collector who has kidnapped Chewbacca. So he wants to trade the lightsaber for Chewbacca. And the collector who has kidnapped Chewbacca... Is played by Doug Jones. Huh. I was like, it was just a, a weird cameo that I did not expect. That's fun. Uh, it's a good short. I'll drop a link in the show notes. The battle choreography sucks, to be honest, but everything else was great. I enjoyed it. And then I went right from that to a Batman short. I don't remember how I got led from one to the other. Uh, and it's the, the idea behind this short is that Joker is dying from cancer and Batman goes to Arkham Asylum to see him and see what his last words will be. And so he walks like, of course, Joker is at the very end of the hallway and Batman has to walk past every other of his rogues gallery of villains trapped in Arkham Asylum. And they're all saying hi as he walks by. And there's Killer Croc, Mr. Freeze, etc. One of them is the Riddler played by Doug Jones. (laughs) And like he has one line and that's it. It's just as Batman walks past his room. So a real cameo, but... I was like, why is, first of all, Doug Jones is a famous actor. Why is he appearing in fan films? And I just, also, why is he showing up in two consecutive yeah, fan right? films I and happen to be watching? Maybe that's why they were linked. Maybe. Like, the, the two Star Wars films I watched both starred the same actor. In one, he played Han Solo, and in the other, he played Obi-Wan Kenobi. And I specifically watched those because he recently made news with, like, a teaser trailer for Robin Williams' biopic, where he played Robin Williams. And it's not an actual movie. It's not a trailer for a full thing. But I really liked how well he played Robin Williams. So I wanted to see what else he did. I found these two Star Wars films. And then somehow I found a Batman film. 
<laughs> and uh, he was not in that. So whatever. But yeah, Doug Jones is everywhere. Moral of the story. Uh, you know, it's funny. This actor, I didn't really know until Discovery. And then it turned out I knew him you know, from a number of shows before and just didn't make a connection. Yeah, I've seen him in a couple of horror movies. But in these two things I just mentioned, he basically plays himself. Like, he's immediately identifiable, unlike in some of the horror movies. Like, oh, what was that? Uh, Pan's Labyrinth. Mm-hmm. It, which did not have... Gates McFadden as the choreographer. <laughs> Very different film. Very different film. <laughs> yeah. oh. Anyway, shall we wrap up this episode? Yes, let's wrap up this episode. Uh, it has been wrapped. Yes, and now we will time travel back to watch and review Star Trek Prodigy, <laughs> which was our previous episode of Transporter Lock. Until next time. Let's fly. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave a review on iTunes and keep your hailing frequencies open by following us on Twitter at TransporterLock or subscribing to our podcast and email newsletter at TransporterLock.com. <laughs>